Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you something, people. I had a guy busting my chops the other night, a friend of mine. And I laugh because he's busting my chops. And yet he is, I think he's 50 now. He's like around my age. And he plays softball every week. And he's so into it, it's awful. I can understand if you go. I have a friend, my friend Michael Feldman, who plays real softball. He travels and tours on teams. But Michael Feldman also struck out Gary Carter, the one inning he pitched for the Cincinnati Reds years ago. So Michael's a phenomenal athlete. Even at 55, Michael could kick most 22-year-olds' asses. But this guy is so funny because I'm giving him crap because he texts me a picture of a contraption, I guess you can buy. And I'm a big sportsman, so I know stuff, that had his bat speed. Now, he, he sent me, and I'm thinking, wait a second. I sent him a message back. I said, dude, you're playing slow pitch softball in a co-ed league. And he's like, no, 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 it's, but it, it's, it's a league. I'm like, yeah, but it's co-ed softball, slow pitch. I said, can people wear jeans to go in the field? He goes, yes. I go, then it's not really a sport. Can people drink beer on the field? Yes. Then it's not really a sport. And he keeps texting me this crap about he's at the batting cage. I'm like, I don't care. I don't care if he went four for five. It's a slow pitch softball league. Anyway, enough about that. We have a great show today. My guest, it's very weird. My guest, I went to see uh, past guest Peter Dobson's um, screening of uh, Dirty Dead Con Men. And my guest's wife was on in the movie. And we just started talking. It was the after party. And we're just talking, you know, you hobnob. You talk to people. And I was like, oh, you on the show? And she told me the story about her uh, her husband. And a very interesting guy. He's not only an actor, a veteran. A, uh, does wonders, wonders for uh getting people nutrient neutrified, I guess would be the word, getting them in shape. Because you know me, I always talk about eating healthy because, you know, even though I cheated lines, but I had to change my whole life. So my guest is Randy Ryan. How you doing, Randy? Uh, glad to be here, Steve. And it's funny, yeah, because it's weird because I, I, I sent you, sent me an email. You introduced, well, your 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 wife sent me an email, all of us introduced each other. And it's, it's funny because that email, I really don't use that account that much because I do it for my show. But People, I mean, you're not sending me a lot of fan mails. Come on, it's it's Cooper at CooperTalk.net. But I got it, and then I sent it back, and I didn't hear from you. And I know you're busy. You're you're about to leave to do a movie, I believe. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, I was glad you called. I mean, emailed, but then you sent me some good info. Now, now, you know, as I, I do my research, now you were born in Chicago, right? No, I was born in Tennessee, okay, well, but early early on, I moved to Chicago, so I went back and forth in childhood. Chicago rural tennessee so i had a little bit of city life a little bit of rural life and it kept going back and forth now your aunt and uncle raised you yeah they had they had a farm and um you know my mom was a waitress in chicago single mom with my sister and i so she struggled a little bit you know we tried to survive in chicago and then we'd go back to tennessee to 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 live with my aunt and uncle and uh so we'd go back and forth a little bit unfortunately um but you know ultimately uh you know it worked out for the best and uh my sister stayed in chicago pretty much and i went down to tennessee now, did you like Tennessee? And is that one of the reasons? I mean, we'll talk later about your the the, the teaching gardening. But is that one of the reasons? Were you doing farming stuff as younger? Were you introduced to that kind of lifestyle? Yeah, one of the reasons I was able to go down is that my uncle had a farm and he needed help, and I was a young, you know, strong little kid, and I could go down and help work on the farm. Me being a Chicago kid and being like you, you know, a huge sports fan. I'm a huge Chicago sports fan. It was tough to move down to Tennessee, and uh, but it also got you know it kept me out of trouble. And um, introduced me to the rural life, which I uh, absolutely treasure today. Now, it must be crazy going from Chicago to Tennessee as a kid, just because I know when my parents would go on a vacation, they would take us to my Aunt Edna's house. And she had like bees and a three-legged dog named Pootie and just a weird thing. For you, I mean, it must have been culture shock because you're going from Chicago, which is such a cool city. It's, it's not like saying Des Moines, which is nothing against Des Moines, but Chicago is one of the top five. And it, yeah. and, and rural Tennessee, not even like Nashville, like rural Tennessee. So as a kid, I mean, did you, were you psyched when you were going to Tennessee? I mean, how did you do it? I mean, I mean, I'm sure you were psyched to go to Chicago to see your mom and you probably loved your aunt and uncle. But were you psyched or were you like, man, like, I mean, I want to hang in Chicago now or I want to hang in the same. I mean, how did you balance that? Well, you know, I was a completely city kid, so my neighborhood was was very uh, culturally diverse. You know, I was a minority as a white kid. You know, all my friends were um, of color. And so, you know, I was a very much an inner city kid. So that made it even, even more dynamic and even a, more of a culture shock. But when I'd go down to Tennessee, I would get used to that culture. But then I would go back to Chicago, and so I was always bouncing back and forth, and it gave me a real perspective on how people are so different you know, in different areas, and they're all kind of scared of each other. I think it's what causes a lot of problems with people. So they don't understand each other because they are so different and so unique, and they don't know each other at all. So so now, 
at what point as a kid, you know, your kid doing this, did, as a kid, did you think, you know, you wanted to get into acting or did you, I mean, what was your goals? Cause your, your path has been very different. You went military, then you went to acting. But even then I can see people, you know, who want to act and put it in the back burner to join the military. But did you want to act as a kid? Oh, Steve, I was the furthest thing from an actor as a kid, you know, never thought about it. Wasn't really into education. You know, I just, um, when I lived with my aunt and uncle, they said I could stay there till I graduated high school and then I had to go make a life. And I didn't know what to do. College was, wasn't even in the picture. So joining the military was the best option for me because, you know, I had to go and just, you know, build a life somehow and I didn't have any skills. So the military was perfect for me. It was the best thing I ever did. And it was the first place I'd ever been where, uh, you know, I felt like I was starting on even ground with everyone. I'd, I'd always felt like I was at a disadvantage, but in the military, you know, nobody has both their parents. Nobody has the nicer clothes. Nobody has a better haircut. You start from scratch. And for me, a young kid with self-esteem issues, I excelled in the military and it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I started out even and it was great. So you go in now, where were you uh, stationed? I went to basic training in Fort Knox, Kentucky, and then I went to Fort Lee, Virginia, and then I went to Fort Benning, Georgia, and then ultimately I spent my time in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. You know, it's funny. My, uh, my sister's ex-husband was stationed at Fort Lee and Fort Benning, and he was, I think his highest rank was Lieutenant Colonel, and do you know a guy named Terry Driscoll? No. Okay, well, he was, was just funny, because I it was wondering, because, yeah, because he was at those places, and, uh... Yeah, they're divorced now, and he's an idiot. But uh, but no, so it's funny. So now, now, now you joined the military, and now how long are you in the military for? Six years total. Okay, now when you go in, you saw action. Yeah. Now when you go in, was there anything going on? Any wars going on? Or did, no, no, not so at you, the time. But Desert Storm came up. Desert Storm came up, you know, and um, it was it was it was different from what the kids are going through today, though, because that was mainly an aerial aerial assault, and so you know there wasn't a lot for us to do. I was in the 18th Airborne Corps. Uh, my unit specifically was topography. I didn't get to choose that MOS, but that's what they thought I was good at in my tests. Now, what's topography? To, uh, map making okay, map, and okay. map distribution and, and providing uh, GPS technology at that time was available, but it wasn't available publicly. Okay. So so that's what my unit did. It's what we provided air, for air support. But that whole thing was over so quickly. It's not the ground support that they have now. Um, but, you know, I did my time and I got out uh, honorable discharge and and was really glad that I did it, and the military has taken really good care of me since I've been out. Well, I gotta ask you, it was, it must be, I mean, just for me, because I've never joined a service, I'm legally blind to one eye, so I couldn't join the service. My dad was in, uh, was in D-Day, so he was in the service, and, uh, but for, when you joined, okay, and you joined, because you, it's something you said, it, you, you're starting on even ground, you know, you, you're getting a start. When you joined, did you think, I mean, because we were, at the time, no one thought we were gonna go to war, did, did you think that that was going to happen and when when you heard it happen did you get scared because i mean i mean that's something big i mean we just now it's so acceptable because all the kids now grew up with a war us i don't know how old you are but our ages we didn't grow up with war i mean vietnam i'm 51 we saw the end of vietnam but no one we knew was really included and the people i know who joined the army except the town of all went to the academies you know yeah, and you didn't yeah. really know people was it yeah. when you joined did you think that there was a chance and were you one of those people who was like, I want to go to war, or one of those people that's like, I, I just want to learn, I want to get a crap, yeah. I want to go in, and I will serve my country because I love my country. What was going through your head when they said, uh, okay, I mean, did they call you? I mean, how does yeah, it happen? Man, you're right. You're, you're right on. You know, it, it, it was the furthest thing from my mind, not what I wanted at all. I wanted an opportunity to get out and, and educate myself and see the world a little bit and learn. So, no, I did not want to do it. It happened right at the end of my service, right when I was ready to get out. So, yeah, I had to do what I had to do, and, um, you know, it, I didn't want to, I didn't want to go to war. I didn't want to, you know, necessarily shoot weapons, and, you know, I did what I had to do to excel in the military, you know, and uh, uh, scored the highest achievement on everything I could do, but, uh, no, I wasn't a kid that wanted to do that. I was just 17 years old when right. I joined up, and I wanted an opportunity at life, and I saved all my money when I was in the military to help pay for college and to start a life. And the military um, matched my funds so I could go to college if I chose to do so, which I did. And so that's that's kind of, uh, yeah, it was it was the furthest thing from my mind when I joined. I wanted an opportunity, and I still think it's a great opportunity for kids. And I, I talk about it a lot with some of the inner city kids I work with. So when you, you get done, your service is up. Now you're out, dishonorable discharge, and you know they, the GI Bill, they'll match it on it. So, and you're 23, probably 24 when you get out? 23. Okay. 
So now you're a 23-year-old kid who, in all honesty, has seen more than most people. I mean, I know when I got out of college at 22, I had seen a lot of breasts and beer bottles. I mean, <laughs> let's be honest. But now you've seen stuff, and, and you're worldly. So now what, what course of action do you take when you get out? Do you sit there and you go, okay, because you've already accomplished a lot. You've been in war. You've excelled. I mean, that, that's something that many people can't say that I've been in war. So you get out, and now you have to do something because you don't want to do it your career. You don't want military to be your career. And now, when do you start acting, or when did you go to college, or when you said you went to college, did you go to college to be an actor, or what happened? Yeah. You know, I I, I I did want to make a career in the military, but then I, I, I visited some of the local college campuses in North Carolina, and I was blown away by the young people there excelling and doing different things. I'd never seen a college campus before, so I decided to get out, and I wanted to go to college. So in my last year in the military, I, I, I earned a year of college credit in my last year, because I wanted to go to North Carolina State University. It was the largest university in in the area and they said high school transcripts you'll you'll never you'll not get into here get out of here and go to um community college i didn't want to go to community college i wanted to go there right and so they said well if you get a year of college in you can get in as a transfer student we won't look at your high school transcript so my last year in the military through correspondence courses and night school and weekends i earned a year of college in my last year full-time soldier full-time college student got straight a's 4.0 and I got into North Carolina State University, which was maybe one of the proudest moments of my life. Unfortunately, when I got to North Carolina State, I was so far behind the kids from an education standpoint. I'd never done homework. I'd never really, I wasn't well-educated. I really, really struggled with the, the courses academically. I mean, I worked hard to get in, but once I got there, it was a real struggle. You know, I was, I was really struggling, but I, I wasn't struggling in the extracurricular activities. Now it was my time to see boobs and to drink right. and to do things and to be completely different from that soldier that I was so disciplined. And I found acting, stumbled into the local theater and started acting. And it was just, it just, it, it struck me so great, you know, to just be able to express myself. How did you find it? I mean, I mean, you said you stumbled in it, but it's like, I mean, it had to be somewhere, somewhere in your subconscious. It had to be there, but I mean. Just to stumble in it. Someone just doesn't stumble into a theater. You don't go, hey, oh, hey, let's go. To, I mean, if I want to learn how to brew beer, I'll go to a microbrewery. If I wanted to act, I would go to a theater. Like when I did comedy, I took a learning analyst class to find it. I mean, how did you end up coming to this first theater? I probably followed a girl in the door. I'm not sure. I really don't remember why I stumbled in there. I know I did want to try everything. I know I wanted to learn to play a saxophone, and I did do that. And I took every every art class, everything I could that was extracurricular. I excelled at. And so, you know, once I, I felt accepted in the theater, I felt strong. I wasn't a lot of guys like me in the theater. So I got, you know, some of the lead roles because maybe I was a little bit more mature. Um, and, you know, it just went from there. And then uh, with the struggles academically, I, there was an opportunity to audition for a conservatory in New York City, Circle in the Square, which is a broad, only functioning Broadway theater that has a school. And I went up there on a lark and auditioned. And not thinking they would accept me or that I would leave even if they did. But they accepted me and I went back to school and I was still struggling academically. And then one day I said, you know what? I'm going to go. I think I'd fit in better there than I would in college. I was having such a hard time keeping up with the books. So you just went, you moved to New York. Moved to New York. Now here's a kid, you know, you're, I knew you were in Chicago, but, you know, then you were in you know, Tennessee. And then you were in the military and you're in, you know, the North Carolina State. And you're, but now you're going to the, to the city. Yeah. Now, was that a little scary? Yeah, it was terrifying. I checked into a hotel on 50th between 8th and 9th, Hotel Edison, checked into a hotel, started taking classes and um, eventually, um, you know, met someone who couldn't afford their studio. So I moved into shared a studio with a girl I didn't know. And that went on for a while and then met different students at the school. And we ended up sharing a basement apartment that was a roach infested, you know, uh, who knows what on the Upper West Side and, and just started working my way up, you know, working in the low end theater scene in New York and just trying to trying to learn. Now, were you working also another job as you're doing this? Did you or did you have money coming like military bill or I mean, how, how, how did you survive? Yeah, one one of the great things and one of the reasons I left college is because I still had my army college fund money, which would transfer to there. So they were, the military was still helping me at this point. So I wasn't working, but eventually that ran out. And then I worked every every dumpy job in New York City you can imagine. So you're acting now you're you're getting are you taking acting lessons but you're take you're doing the school but now are you are you getting stage time too are you getting to get into any different productions or are you just concentrating on learning the craft? Yeah, this is a conservatory where you just spend all day long taking classes and a lot of the instructors are working Broadway directors and teachers from Juilliard so it was completely um, you were booked all day long. 
I kind of wish I'd worked a little bit more and focused more on work, but I focused on the process and learning, you know, and, and not on the work aspect of it, which I wish I would have focused more on the work because I realize now that you, ha you have to work to be an actor. You can't just keep studying acting. And I'm not sure I agree with the whole conservatory thing, and I should, probably shouldn't say that, but, but I, I just think work is the, is the basis of this business. You have to find a way to work, and you're going to learn so much when you're on a set or when you're doing a play professionally and you actually work. So, so, um, no, but at that time I was just gung ho about learning and, um, and I, you know, I worked really hard. So you got out, you got out of school. So now you got to hit, you got to hit the acting world or, or you just got to sit there and say like so many people, you know, they, they do it and then they go, uh, you know, I mean, you know how it is. People sit there and do anything. They'll, they'll try it for six months. Yeah. You see it in LA all the time. People come out and then you're like, Hey, whatever happened to that person? No, they moved back to, or you see it on Facebook. Wait, they moved back to. North Carolina, I thought they like got a part in something. And it's just, it's weird though, because people just move constantly and they get out of this business and it is a very hard business. So now what do you start doing then when you start getting out, you have to get, you have to get an agent. Did you get an agent easily or what happens? No, I didn't get an agent after I, we graduated from school, you know, it was, was going to be a long, hard road for me. So I started working in theaters, uh, working the light board and working as an usher. And then I started working as a reader at auditions. I worked for, uh, roundabout theater doing as a reader and with that was a wealth of experience and I started working with casting directors just helping them read and just just trying to do anything to find work but but it was you know it was a real struggle and um, I hung in there and uh, eventually started getting a couple breaks now your your first break was it the movie the what well, that was your first lead the forgotten it was yeah that's the first film I ever did was a little war film about the Korean War which I'm so proud of it turned out so great one best picture at a couple of uh, film festivals and you know, I didn't know anything about acting, and a lot of us didn't, but it turned out really well. I'm very proud of it. Now, how'd you get that part? I mean, was it, did they also know you were, had military experience? Did that help you get the part, or, or did, you, did, did you tell people that you had military experience, or did you say, I don't want that because I don't want to be sit there and stuck into like a Dolph Lundgren role? You know what I mean? It's <laughs> like, you know, like some of these military movies yeah, are, are yeah. like, well, we need someone to be, you know, ultra, you know, ultra military. And you're like, but that's not me. It's like, so how did you get this part? There was a casting director that I uh, that had gotten to know me a little bit. Her name was Denise Fitzgerald, and she called me in. And um, I don't know if my military background got me the part because there were a lot of guys that auditioned for it. Some of them are now famous that I remember a little bit. Back then they weren't, but um, you know I remember them. You know, just he was kind of a guy that uh, you know it was a complicated part, so it, was, it required some acting. And uh, and then also they wanted a like an appealing guy, whatever. So I remember part of the audition. First time I've ever, only time I've ever had to do this. They asked me to take off my shirt, so that was part of it too. And they, and um, so you know, that was, uh, yeah. I don't think my military had anything to do with it, but who knows, you know. So you do that now. You're also on Sex in the City. Yeah. Now that's something that I, I, I did watch the show somewhat, and uh, when I watched it, it was very funny. It was very, it was very well. I didn't watch the movies. I didn't. I, I don't want to see two hours of that. But now you were in the last episode ever. Is that or? Yeah, I was in the very last episode. It's the most watched at the time, the most watched cable episode of all time. And it, you know, it was the final show. And um, so the, the, you know, the competition to get in there was so intense. And I was so, 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 so lucky to get that part. But it was a uh, kind of like a white trash guy who's uh, a couple, and they're going to give their baby to Charlotte and her husband. And then at the last minute, they decide not to. And um, so that that was the part. And um, I know. I remember the Michael Patrick King and all the all the guys, Melfi and all the there was a whole board of people when we auditioned and, and they said they got a lot of great actors in there, probably a lot of better actors than myself, but but I remember afterwards uh, Michael Patrick King told me, you know, he goes, I saw all these great actors from great training and he goes, And you walked in and you were like a guy selling Christmas trees that fell off the truck. He said it was it was just perfect for this part on like in like a naturally unsophisticated couple that is a little bit overwhelmed with being in New York and uh it, it was really great. I, I thought it was hilarious, um, you know, but a lot of people, rural people were offended by it, I thought, which I thought was so, so interesting, you know, because they, they the couple was supposedly from Charlotte, North Carolina, which the New York writers thought, oh, let's get some bumpkins in here. So let's find a real bumpkin town. And what they didn't realize, Charlotte, North Carolina is not a bumpkin right. town. That whole triangle, you have Raleigh-Durham, yeah. they're all, they're all great i mean very educated people and the people in the charlotte when they found out there's going to be people from charlotte represented on the show they had all these parties they all got dressed up in their fine jewelry and their gowns right. and they gathered around their tvs and charlotte north carolina is represented by these two backwoods bumpkins that are so i thought that was hilarious and i kept every clipping in the papers that, in charlotte 
and they were brutal about the show. You know, like, oh my God, we got together to watch this show, and I just think it's hilarious. Now, did did people recognize you at, right after that? Because it's one of those shows that is such a avid fan base, and people just, I mean, women. I mean, look, I mean, you think about it; they made the uh, the Cosmo popular, and and the sour apple martini, and the, one one episode, and every bartender's pissed at them when they said, "Oh yeah, we did mojitos." Then that next night, every bar's like, "What? You put mint in a drink?" Yeah. I mean, it just it that was it was a pop culture icon. Did you get noticed like after the show? Did people notice you in the street? And did, how did people react when you actually were normal and you weren't? Because I always know people misconstrue what an actor and their role is. I mean, how did people did people recognize you? Oh yeah, every time I do a TV show, people recognize me, and the reactions are always very odd and. A lot of times people don't know where they know me from. They always ask me, if I did I go to high school with you? But people didn't recognize me from the, the part, but you could just tell. Back then, living in New York, I'd take the subway, and people would just look at me. Like, did I see this guy on America's Most Wanted? Right. Do I know him, or or is he was he on TV? They, they can't figure it out. You know, I, I've looked different in everything I've done. I, haven't, I don't have really a niche. I, so, you know, I had long sideburns in that, and then I cut them off. But people kind of like, where do I know this guy? Now, so you're in New York, and then you I think you were there for 10 years before you moved to L.A. Yeah. What made you move? Because a lot of times people, I mean, a lot of times people sit there and say, okay, it's time for me to go. I want to follow the film. I want to acting. It happens to people in Chicago where you, you lived for a while, where when Chicago had a lot of production, the Second City people said, it's time to go. Was there, a, was there a certain point that made you say it's time to go, or did you just get tired of New York? Or was there, I mean, how that how that move take place? Well, um, a friend of mine got a Broadway show. He lives out here, and he wanted to do an apartment swap with me. He said, man, come out in L.A. and just see what it's like for four months. I'm going to do the run of this show. So I gave him my apartment in New York. He gave me his house out here in Burbank. And so I lived out here for four months. I really loved it out here. I, I mean, I, but I love New York, too. So we did our swap back. His show ended. I came back. And then, you know, I thought about it a little bit more. Um, my girlfriend and I at the time, who's now my wife, we said, man, we should go out there and give it a go. I had done, I think, everything I could do in New York. I'd done so much theater, so much theater I'm proud of. And then I'd done every show that was in New York at the time. I'd done a guest star on every show just about. So I said, let, let, let's go to L.A. and give it a shot. You know, we think the quality of life out there would suit us. We'll sublet our apartment in New York. Everything just seemed to fit perfectly. And so we, uh, we packed up our Jeep and decided to drive across country. That's cool. You did a third watch. Yeah. Well, it's funny is uh, one of the stars of that, she, back God, years ago, dated one of my buddies from college who is actually going to be out tonight because he's a pilot. Uh, it was Molly Price. Yes. Yes. She was it Molly Price was listening, right? I, I, I don't know her, but. You know, yeah. No, yeah. So it's funny because I think that's just funny. You were I saw in your thing, you were on that show and mm -hmm. my friend Frank is coming out tonight. He has a layover because he's a pilot. We're meeting for dinner, but I, just, I saw third watch in your thing. So now, when you come when you come out to L.A., is it's it's culture shock, and and now your did your credit your credits really don't translate when you come out here, did they? I mean, or did they sit there and go, okay, this guy's got stuff going on, or did you, did you get a new agent, or how did that work? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, halfway across the country, we were in Texas, and I get a call back from New York, and my agent in New York that says you have an audition for Public Enemies which is a big project. I was like, oh my goodness, that, isn't that right? What happens as soon as you leave town, right. you get a big audition. So my wife and I, or girlfriend at the time, were like, what, what are we going to do? I mean, I, I, you know, this is a big opportunity. I'd be perfect for that film. And so, you know, uh, we decided to put my wife in a hotel and, and then I, I flew back to New York just for the audition. And, um, that, and that's what we did. And I, I flew back just for the day, then flew back to Texas, and then we drove the rest of the way. Not thinking about it, we invested 800 bucks just for an audition. Craziest decision we ever made. Months and months later, I get the part. Now, did you know that Johnny Depp was involved when you auditioned, or did you just know it was a big project? Well, I knew it was Michael Mann, and yeah, okay. I, I believe at the time there was uh, Johnny Depp and, and Christian Bale attached, yeah, yeah. So you, you sit there, and it, it, of course it takes a bunch of months. So you move out here, you get set up out here, and then you wait. Now, now, and you don't know, because I always hear it, I always hear it all the time. People sit there and go, they forgot about me, and then like a few months later, you get a call. So were you just thrown off guard? I mean, were you, you did you just sit there, did you write it off when you didn't hear from them thinking, I didn't get it, or was there any inkling that they may be interested before you got the call? Uh, yeah, I got I got feedback right away um, from the casting directors uh, through my agent that said, you know, they, they really liked you. They really liked you a lot, you know, for this part, and uh, they want to put you on hold. 
And who knows what that means. Right. So I was like, oh, I'm on hold. That's great. You know, so that's a good thing. It was a great way to start in L.A. that I could possibly start my career out here in L.A. with a big credit. And then I went from hold like, uh, you know, a month later, oh, you're on stronghold. And so the, all these terms that I'd never heard before. And so I was like, oh, great, great, great. And then the next thing you know, you know, um, they, they want you. But but we don't know when yet. So, oh, man, it was just so nerve wracking and so wonderful at the same time. And um, eventually they said, yeah. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna fly to Chicago. They sent a limo to pick me up, and I flew to Chicago. And it's, first class. Uh, oh, absolutely. See, that's the best. That's the studios. Was, yeah, that's cool. It was unbelievable. And um, first class, four seasons, like five star so, hotel. Yeah, you have one of those guys with the sign. Totally. See, that's the coolest. I always sit there. I go because uh, I did that one time when my girlfriend was finally moving out here for good. I sent a car, so she I didn't tell her, and then when she landed, she goes. Oh, you know, I'm here, you know, and she just, she had already, all her stuff, her car was already shipped out and all that. And then the guy was there with a sign and I was like, you know, like, oh, and I said, cause you know, Hey, my life's over. <laughs> so, so you get there, so you get to the four seasons. Yeah. I get to the four seasons. It was, it was incredible, you know, and then I, my gig, I wasn't sure how long it was going to last. They didn't know things were a little bit chaotic, but they said, you're going to get at least three weeks. I was like, oh my goodness, this, this is amazing. So we, we, we checked into the hotel, kind of waited around a couple of days, nothing. And then we went to Crown Point, Indiana, where they were shooting the breakout scene, Johnny Depp. And they said, they're going to cut your hair, put you in the clothes, and Michael Mann's going to come by. And he's going to look at everyone, all the actors that he'd hired across the country from New York, Chicago, and, and Los Angeles. And, and some of you aren't going to make the cut. He's going to look at you. And if he doesn't like the way you look now, as opposed to a couple months ago, you're going home. And I, we were so scared. I remember those guys, most of those guys, the ones that stuck around, because he did. He went through and he said, no, no, no. And those guys who thought they were going to work on this movie ended up going home. Now, do they get paid for the three weeks? No, I okay, don't think so. So they just go there, and then oh, that would suck, right? I mean, that's like that's like the way you finally get this break. And you know, you're talking to people. Hey, I got that. And then you go. Then you all of a sudden you sit there and you're home, and they go, "Oh, what the hell happened? Oh, uh, yeah, I didn't look good in a in a beret." What? Or or they warned me. They said, "Don't don't get in shape. Don't lose a bunch of weight. Don't change at all. If you if you like all of a sudden like start pumping iron and getting weight, get get lose weight, or if you gain weight." Or if you do anything to look different, he's going to let you go. Because he, he liked your face, he liked the way you look, and he wanted you to look exactly like that. So uh, I, I still remember standing there that day. It was freezing cold. And the guy that was standing next to me is still a buddy of mine. And we both made the cut. So Now, you, you make the cut. Now, what's it like to meet Johnny Depp? I mean, as an actor, you got to sit there and go. And it's like, it's like you know, you, you work with people like you've worked on Criminal Tent, which I love Vincent D'Onofrio. Oh, Vincent yeah. D'Onofrio is such a great actor. Yes. And there, there are so many great actors, you know, and I mean, I say I get a lot of character actors in my show who are just great actors. But there's a difference between a character actor and Johnny. I mean, Johnny Depp is Johnny Depp. I mean, that's like, that's like international superstar. Yeah. And as an actor or just as anyone, I mean, you could even be a director. It must just be very... Uh, one, you must be so like amazed that you're actually working with this guy. But two, you just there, there's got to be that aura. I mean, how do you? How, it must be hard to just even sit there and go, "How am I going to say hi to him?" I mean, yeah. was that odd meeting him? Yeah, it was, and he is still the only celebrity I've ever met who is better looking in person than he is on film. Okay. I mean, he is something else, and uh, I I just thought he was wonderful. He was the nicest guy, and and during the filming, especially the first couple of weeks, we were exterior a lot. We were filming all through the night a lot. And um, I, I never saw a celebrity that after we were done with a 12, 14-hour day, we couldn't wait to get to our trailers, get out of these heavy clothes. Sometimes we'd be wet from raining, whatever. I mean, I would go in my trailer, change, get all the crappy makeup off, get all the goop out of my hair, and I'd be ready to go back to the hotel to sleep. Johnny Depp would still be standing outside in the rain signing autographs. If 500 people showed up, he would say hello to all 500 people. I mean, I would be dressed... Going to sleep, he'd still be in his uniform or his costume, and um, signing autographs, talking to people. I mean, he is incredible, and you, you that tells you why he's as popular as he is, you know. And um, he stood up for actors a lot, you know. He was, uh, he he was really, really, really down to earth and incredible, yeah. And he uh, likes uh, rum smoothies uh, in the morning. So Spencer told you that, didn't he? I saw the picture on Facebook, <laughs> and I and I brought that up to your wife, and I think you're the one who took the picture. Yeah, yeah, because it's funny because I saw the Spencer and you're on this thing and I told her I said, wait, I saw a picture of a, uh, of I said, but your husband was it? and she goes, oh, I think he took the picture. That must be cool though when you're drinking smoothies with Johnny Depp in the morning. Well, look, there were so many interesting guys. I mean, you got like forty, well, not the whole time, but you know, bunch of interesting guys coming in, you know, and these guys were were, were given too much money, 
we're flying around different parts of the country filming scenes. I mean, you can imagine how much fun we had, how much trouble we got into. You know, it was a real bonding experience, and it just it just couldn't couldn't could not have been better. And I know the whole time I kept asking all the actors, how can I keep this? How can I make this happen again? They're like, oh, Randy, this doesn't this doesn't happen in the business where you you know this a film like this where the budget is so big, and you know they're just handing us folders every day of money. They, really? they were giving us an envelope of for money just to just for a, a per diem. Okay, so the per diem was nice. And then, and the thing is though, what's funny about per diem is in these shows, I always crack up because I have friends who work on shows and they get a per diem. But I've done some background work lately. Hey, I'll tell you something. <laughs> that damn, that damn, the food they give you is pretty good. I mean, I did a thing yesterday and they're making omelets for you and they're making breakfast burritos. I'm thinking what? And then I go to lunch and there's fish and there's chicken and there's pork and you open my every every set has great pasta salad. I don't know what it is. Like I've had a lot of pasta salad in my life from great Italian delis back east, but I don't know how they do it. Yeah. Every goddamn set has the best pasta salad yeah. and rice pilaf. Rice pilaf usually sucks. <laughs> you know how it is. The rice is good. You sit there. I yeah. never sit there and go, oh, yeah, rice. <laughs> so yesterday, I'm like, okay, rice. And it just looks like regular rice. They always make is. those because they last. They okay. last through the day, see? So that's why they make those. And yeah, they are usually good. And you know, on that particular set, we were getting meal penalties where we would have to work through our lunch hour, which was crazy. We were getting paid so much extra because they would make us anything we wanted and bring it to us. So, okay, so you could, it was basically, you were catered to because you were this. Tremendous. Yeah, the central, they would bring us whatever we wanted, you know. I mean, there were nights we would work all night and, you know, it got cold sometimes. It would get tough. And I remember one particular night we were in Little Bohemia up in uh, northern northern Michigan, right near the Canadian border. And we were shooting in all the real places where the events happened. And I had to stand there all night holding this large weapon. You know, it was cold all night, three nights, four nights, five nights. Every time I thought about, okay, I'm going to say something, we were just standing. And they're shooting on the other side of the building. They're not even shooting us. But they want us to stand there, you know, just in case they come around. Four nights, five nights, six nights we're standing there. And then I'm like, man, I should say something. First of all, we're getting meal penalty. We're getting overtime. And I, but still, you know, it gets a little tough. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to think about complaining. Every time I did, I would look 15 feet over. Standing against a tree was Christian Bale every night and never complained once. Didn't say a word. So I was like, I love this guy. You know, I really enjoyed Christian as well. He's a real professional and a real, really uh, great guy. Well, I know he's gotten some crap like in that one thing where he freaked out on a guy. But yeah. my feeling is, and I, I'm, I, in, all, in all honesty, and I, I believe in being nice to everybody, you know, but, but in that, case i'm sort of i'm backing up christian bale because one he's in character and one he's the, and, and we don't know this guy just may have been a shitty worker that's the thing they never tell the other story and maybe this guy was screwed up the whole time and christian bale may have lost his cool but it's like you know it happens well my opinion of it is you're never going to know what really happened because you weren't there right the problem is someone released that tape i mean when you're in a working environment you don't know the history you don't know what's going on so it, it, it a, a set should be closed, and whoever released those tapes shouldn't have done it because you don't know what's going on with those two guys. You don't know what really happened. You're just getting the bad end of an argument, you know. I mean, I'm I'm madly in love with my wife, but I, I, I would rue the day someone would take our worst argument and right. publicize it. Yeah. That would be horrible. So so now you get done filming this movie, and now you, you're, now you come back to L.A. Now you have some heat going, but I want to find out. From, I mean, you have to see me go, but I want to find out, and this is totally veering off the subject, how you got into this teaching gardens, because you're working with, she's the, the wife of the president of, what, yeah. what studio is uh, it? NBC Universal, so, Kelly uh, Meyer, well, yeah. Well, just tell people real quick what teaching gardens is, and I want to talk about this, because I, I know we're talking about your career, but this is very interesting, this, yeah. this project. Teaching gardens combines the two best parts of myself, which is urban and rural. Teaching gardens is a program that builds organic vegetable gardens in inner city schools across the country. It started in South LA, which is a food desert, which is a, probably one of the most um, at-risk, in-need neighborhoods in the country. Um, so we, we started trying to help these kids by understanding that it's a food desert. We're trying to help these kids understand where food comes from because they don't know. you know. And ev there are no grocery stores there. The kids, everything they eat is from a fast food restaurant or a, or a deli or a liquor store. You know, so it's it's really really tough these kids, and I started volunteering, um, in, in helping veterans reintegrate back into society, and turns out growing food and gardening helped veterans. So that's what I started doing. I was trying to help some of these young vets who are dealing with PTSD. Well, that led to helping kids in the inner city and having the vets come and help these kids learn about food. Turns out American Heart Association came and saw what we were doing, thought it was really cool. The, the initial idea, though, came from Kelly Meyer, who's a philanthropist, and she's Ron Meyer's now, 
Now, how did you know her? Just a friend of mine asked me to come and volunteer, and it was her idea to help the inner city kids with schools. Her, she wanted to put a garden in her kids' school in Malibu, and she did that, and it turned out really great. Even the kids in Malibu learned a lot about where food comes from and growing, and she said, wouldn't this be great to do it in the inner city? And so she's also a big supporter of veterans. So she reached out to some of her friends and said, do you know any vets that might know anything about growing food? Well, one of my friends said, Randy, this would be perfect for you. Why don't you come and volunteer? You know, and I said, great. So I just started volunteering. But when the American Heart Association got involved, they said, we could make this part of our program, you know, as American Heart Association, we, we could umbrella this and make it a national program. So what they did is they saw what we were doing. They thought it was great. They said, but we need someone to lead it. And we don't know what we're doing as far as gardening. American Heart Association doesn't garden, you know, and um, or grow food. And so with all the veterans there and with Kelly Meyer, they said, Randy, will you come and and lead this program and help American Heart Association form this program so we could make it um, a turnkey business? And if we can be successful in South L.A., we could be successful anywhere. So they challenged me. They gave me 10 gardens in South L.A. at 10 of the worst schools. Now, now, how big are the gardens when you say a gardener? So you have 10 gardens. Are they? Is it like a backyard garden? Is it just like a... Like something you have on your apartment still. I mean, what size garden are they giving to you? And saying, and then do you decide what's going to be grown in them? Well, it depends on the school. We have to adapt for every school, so the gardens are different at at every school, um, you know. But one thing they do have in common is they're all raised bed gardens because we can't plant in the ground at these schools because the soil is so contaminated and it's not suitable. Because what's in the soil is what's going to come into the food that you eat. Right. So we have to control the soil. And control the uh, control the plants, and we let the kids decide what they want to plant. That's part of the learning process. What's in season? You know, what are you going to do with the food and things like that. So the kids kind of get to decide. Um, but the problem with the program is they 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 challenged me with the ten worst schools in L.A., and that was kind of tough because they have a lot more problems than a garden. So it was a real challenge. But uh, but we 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 did it. This was about uh, five years ago. We did it. They were successful. It got some national press, um, and um, you know Huffington Post. And maybe one of my proudest moments is Huffington Post featured five veterans nationally that are making a difference in society. I was one of those five vets, which I'm very proud of. And the American Heart Association saw the results and said, you know what? I think this could be something we could do nationally. And um, they did. They adopted the program with me leading the way. And now there's over 400 gardens nationally. Now, I, it's funny that, you know, you said, you know, you were in these bad areas and you said the kids, what they, they eat from is, you know, liquor stores. And they always say... And that this is a true fact, I believe. I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's a true fact. The worse the neighborhood, the more fast food joints there are. Just because because they know, okay, people don't have the time or people don't care and they're gonna buy a thirty five cent taco. You know what I mean? They're not yeah. gonna sit there like I I make I made turkey tacos the other night and I get the Mrs. Dash, no salt added. And yeah. I mean I had like five of them and Joe added like four, but it was like the whole dinner, it came out to like sixty cents a taco. And people don't know that that and it's so much better than the crap they get and you know and so these kids get used to it how is their reaction to you and i mean first of all kids hate vegetables anyway yeah and but now kids are getting different kids actually like vegetables i think people are saying it's because if the parents are putting vegetables out and they make them differently and you know it's like i mean and there's a full cycle but now how does it you coming across to these kids i mean do the kids the kids help with the garden right they build it themselves. I don't let adults do anything. I don't let outside organizations come in. I let the kids do it. I let them fail, um, and I let them learn. You know. But how do you con- convince these kids that vegetables are good? Because as you said, you know, I mean, junk food is awful for you. But I'll tell you something: a piece of Popeye's fried chicken tastes damn good. Yeah. Okay. A Big Mac tastes good. It's you know, but you know, so does other good dishes. But how did you start convincing the kids? Because first of all, they're kids, and you know they're coming from broken homes because they're at the worst schools. They're coming from awful, awful neighborhoods. It's not like that bad neighborhood in your little area where, you know, like let's say the town you grew up in, like, oh, that's the shady side of town. No, like this area where they see murder, they see stuff like that. They don't, they come from broken homes. They don't sit there and they don't get a chance. The last thing, as you said, is a vegetable garden. How do you convince these kids that vegetables are good? I mean, it must be very hard because their morale must be so low already. Yeah. I mean, and sit there, and you're convincing them with vegetables. If you said I'm, you know, I'm making it, you're making a Skittles garden. Yeah. Because yeah. look at how would you go about convincing these kids and trying to pass the word on that, that this is going to help you? Well, you know, the first thing you can't do is you can't come in and start telling kids McDonald's is bad, potato chips are bad. That doesn't work. You know, 
So part of it and part of the reason I was perfect for this is that I can relate to the kids. And I knew the most important thing for me was to relate to the kids and getting through to them as just being someone that they would want to spend time with. So that was the most important thing. And number two, you can't walk in there with a piece of broccoli and expect them to eat it. They're not going to eat it. They don't want it. They don't like it. It's foreign to them. And um, so what I did learn, though, is the sense of accomplishment from growing something is something that these kids don't experience. Okay. You know, to watch something from the ground up, to grow it, to plant it, to see it start to sprout, to take care of it and to see it get bigger, to see it bloom. I mean, it's completely new to these guys. And I've never had a kid that, that grew something that wouldn't try it. If they grow it, they'll try it. So that's what I learned. And these kids going through that experience of growing things themselves and learning, it was theirs. It was ownership. And then they were taking that education, I think, home to their parents, you know, and, and somehow that seemed to be the key for me, you know, and I used to tell kids, I used to say, you know, who here has grown food before? No kid would raise their hand. I would say, whose kid's parents have a garden who have grown food? Maybe one hand would go up. And I would say, who here, grandparents grow food? 100% of the kids' hands would go up. So I was like, somehow we're two generations removed from people growing food or being aware of where food comes from. People don't believe me when I tell them that kids don't know where food comes from. I'm telling you, I am ground zero. These kids do not know where food comes from. So to learn that and to see that, you know, kids love food. They love to learn about food. They love to learn an environment where they can explore. It's hands-on. These kids don't do anything hands-on. Everything they learn is from a book. They're told what to do. But in a garden and in a growing environment with fruit trees or, or growing vegetables, they actually do it. And I make it an incentive-based thing. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get on kids' case. I'm like, hey, kid, you don't want to be here? Just go to the classroom and doodle on your hand. I'm fine. But if you want to be out here, we're going to have fun. We're going to work. We're going to grow. And also part of it is I make the kids work. You know, I make them work. And they love it. They love being active. They love getting out. And, um, you know, a lot of times I'll like, let's, let's grow the stuff we need for salsa. Okay? So, boom, we start planting, you know, tomatoes, onions, peppers. And we grow the things. And, and they're so amazed to see these plants turn into a salsa. And I'll have like the boys compete against the girls who can make the best salsa. We'll have some seasonings. And then I'll say, okay, you guys want to grow a Big Mac? They're like, yeah, let's grow a Big Mac. I'm like, great, great. So the first thing we have to do is find out what's in a Big Mac. So someone go to your computer and print it out. When they see the ingredients that are in a Big Mac, I mean the words, there's like maybe 50 ingredients with Z's and X's. They're like, how do we grow that? I'm like, you we know. don't. Now, now, how do the parents react to it? Because I think anything, you know, and it's funny, kids are open to change more than parents. A lot of parents aren't open to change. A lot of adults aren't. And also, if you've had a very hard life and you only know one thing, you're not open to change. I mean, that's one thing I always loved when I was a kid. My mom would always say, if you don't try it, you're not going to like it. I remember the first time I tried yogurt. I'm like, I don't want to try yogurt. And like an idiot, I didn't know the fruit was on the bottom. So I take a big thing of yogurt. And I'm like, this is a god. I'm like, ah, this is gross. And my mom's like, no, you have to. And it was boysenberry down into some of it. You have to mix up. And I was yeah. like, hey, this is good. I know what yogurt is. And you, as a kid, you're like, oh, but if you try it, you might like it. Well, that's kids. But parents, how do parents react? And do parents ever want to get involved then? Or do they, do they want to learn how to garden from you? Without a doubt. You know, I, I remember growing up, you know, trying to tell my mom not to smoke. I mean, I was a little kid telling my mom, don't smoke, don't smoke. So that's kind of how I think about it. I, I want to educate the kids so they can come home and teach their parents or at least pressure their parents a little bit. And I mean, see, we don't have a, enough time for me to tell you how many parents have come up to me and said that they've lost weight or to say that they plant a garden in their backyard because their kids come home and they're inspired about this and they're learning. And the kids, they take that education home, not only to their parents, but their siblings and, and, and the power of empowering these kids to go home and share that message that they're going home from school with this thing that they think is special. I mean, the numbers are just astronomical that I can tell. I mean, I've built, you know, over a hundred gardens myself and, and, and you can imagine that, uh, you know, over six figures of kids I've affected, you know, uh, you know, in person through the, through the last five years of doing this. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's incredible to see the parents and the changes they've gone through because, their kid was empowered, you know, so it's, 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 it's incredible. Now you said you have a, a lot of veterans volunteer. Yeah. Now how, what is their role in when they volunteer? Cause you said you don't want adults to be involved. Are they basically like coaching or cheerleading or keeping the morale up? I mean, and how do you find these veterans? Well, I have a lot of friends who are in veterans, you know, I'm in the, um, in a couple of organizations, uh, the farmer veteran coalition, which helps veterans become farmers. And I'm also in veterans for film and television. 
Um, so I have a lot of friends that are veterans. No gardening is required because, like I said, I don't I don't want people adult and adults always want to come in and help and they always want to do the gardening. I'm like, no, we don't we don't need that. What I need is first of all, uh, men of color. I'm I am a Caucasian, and sometimes you know in the neighborhoods, men of color are a little bit absent, and and to have men of color come in and just mentor, just work with the kids, let the kids teach you, just to come and talk to them and to tell them about what you do. Maybe you're an editor, you know, maybe you have an, a hydroponic farm, just to see men of color come in that that are successful and that are take pride in what they do, and to just mentor the kids. And so I just need male role models just to flood in. And you'd be amazed what comes up in a garden. You know, it becomes bigger than gardening. It becomes bigger than mentoring. It just becomes about the human experience, people talking to each other from different cultures, different backgrounds. In the neighborhoods where I work, most of the kids have never left like a 10-block radius. So they don't see things from the outside. And sometimes for me, being a Caucasian, you know, sometimes, you know, unfortunately, you know, you have kids coming from Nebraska that go to the inner city and work. I'm not a big fan of that. It's just like, it just doesn't seem to mix for me. The ki- the kids that come and do this just seem like they're in an Africa or something. They're, they're a little bit out of touch, you know, and it, it, so it's not as successful as to me as, um, you know, uh, having veterans come in and then having men of color come in and just, uh, you know, show kids uh, something from Los Angeles. It's a little bit different that's accessible because Nebraska is not accessible to these kids. It's like Mars. So uh, So that's why I bring veterans in. And, um, you know, and, and it's also great for the veterans. I mean, they, they don't know how admired they are. You know, I've worked with celebrities a lot, bringing some of my celebrity friends in. You, you'd be surprised how many of the little kids don't want to meet the celebrity. They want to meet the veteran. Well, yeah, because kids is something, you know, it's like, especially if they don't really know the, the celebrities work. I mean, to a little kid, celebrity is different. I mean, a Teletubby is more of a celebrity than George Clooney to a little kid. You know what without I mean? Without a doubt. Without and, a doubt. And a soldier, that's something. Oh, it's a soldier because kids, especially now, because with TV. There's always something about war. You're not going to get away with it. I mean, it's yeah. just it's just the difference. I mean, my sister posted on Facebook yesterday how 20 years ago, no, no was it 20? No, 30, no, how many years? 50, <laughs> 45 years, whatever. July 20th, no, not 20 years ago. It was uh, Neil Armstrong, was the date of Neil Armstrong, first walk on the moon. I think it was, it was 43 years ago. Mm-hmm. And my sister posted how, I think it was, was it? Yeah. 69, wasn't it? Yeah, so it was 46 years ago. And my sister posted how my mom put us all around a TV set and even took a picture. And I forget that, but that's but that's the stuff. Now kids, you know, we see that. And you remember now kids see war and they know and they see stories and they know what a soldier is. And so to them, it's important. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know that you're so right. And just the exposure. And I've had kids go on now from from the gardens what they've learned and they've gone on to go to culinary arts programs in New York City. And some of them have gone on to work for nonprofits. Uh, building vegetable gardens just to help communities. So my goal with this was never to create gardeners or farmers or even better eaters. My goal was just to work with kids and self-esteem and to, and to just give kids a little bit of an experience of something different and to learn how to um, to learn how to learn in real time a little bit. But but the offshoot of it is a lot of kids have gotten involved in the movement and have gone on to do other things just from that experience and and to see that happen is really cool. And what's good is also is, is you know you're talking about the vegetables and I think I think so many people are informed uninformed about yeah. I mean even educated people are uninformed like you know the whole thing about chicken I mean people say chicken breasts oh you know because I like chicken thighs but they're boneless skinless and everyone's like, oh you know it gets people, well chicken breasts are so much better I went to my cardiologist and he goes it's chicken. You know what I mean? People don't know. People hear something and they may hear, you know, oh, well, now it's kale. Kale is so great for you. Well, I know kale used to be the garnish at a buffet. And I'm telling you, if you put kale's nutrients against collard greens, it's going to be pretty much the same. Yeah. But now, because people just sit there, you know, you can inform these kids that, you know, that carrots are good for you. Now, if people sit there and go, oh, well, there's, you know how people always, there's always something bad about a vegetable or a fruit. Like, oh, well, this fruit, if you eat this fruit, it's awful. You know, it, it will do this to you. It's like bananas. They're, and it's like you always see 10 fruits you can't eat. But that's a yeah. bull crap a lot of And times. it changes every 10 years. Right. What's good for you now is bad for you, you know. So uh, that's why I try to incorporate just just learning. Just learn how to learn. And, you know, because everything's going to change. The, the key words are going to change. Like uh, farm to table, the word is going to be different. It's going to be something else in five years. You know, but just learn how to learn and, and just think about it. Just a little bit about what you eat. Maybe some things won't taste as good. But then, you know what? you can make them taste better. You know, you can add things culturally that, that you have in your own culture right. that it might be good. And and ju- just learn. And, and just also just, just learn what's in crap food. 
Right. Well, it was funny. Also, it was about <laughs> organic. I always love people who go like, oh, you got to get organic. You got to get organic. And then they 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 wash it. And it's like, well, it's not organic anymore because you just put, you know, and it's not like they're pouring Brita filtered water over. They're pouring, and people don't get that. And people just jump into it. And I'm going to be honest, I don't really shop. I don't, I don't buy organic, you know, and I'll tell you something, and this is awful, but I'll buy peppers and everyone says, peppers are so awful with the pesticides. I'll buy green and red peppers at a store because it's one store, John's has all of them are like the same price, but you never find that. And they sell them by the pounds. So mm-hmm. you get like four, a red, yellow pepper, green pepper, and it's like a buck. Yeah. But I don't, I don't wash them sometimes. People are like, oh, you're going to die. It's like, no, I don't, I don't. I think sometimes people just, you know, it's, they, they react, overreact today. I, mean, I know we spray stuff, but it's yeah. not, I don't, it's not as bad as people say it is, I don't think. Well, I just think you're talking about radicals. People are going to be radical about anything. I, I just think overall to be aware of what you eat is important and to choose some things organically or not, you know. I just I just want to prevent people from eating at McDonald's every right. meal. And I got nothing against McDonald's. I think McDonald's is delicious. I think McDonald's is something culturally for me has a very significant meaning because my mom was poor. We were poor. So when we got to go to McDonald's as a kid, that was a special thing. Right. And that's that's a thing and it was a special thing. Now it's it's a <clears throat> it's a given. I mean, my growing up, if you got an A on your report card, you took it to McDonald's and they give you a cheeseburger. And yeah. that was an that was an accomplishment. Yeah. But it's changed since then. It has changed since then. And, you know, to, but just for kids to understand, you know, that you, you can't live off that. It's not sustainable. Understand how the body works. Find things that work for you that you enjoy, that you want to eat, that are healthy. And, and also be aware of how food makes you feel after a little while. So I, I, I think that uh, the most important thing about food is for kids to just think about it. So I think most people eat without thinking at all how it makes me feel, how it's going to affect me in the long run. A little bit of uh, delayed gratification goes a long way, I think. Yeah. And I always Instagram pictures. I say, eat healthy and cheap. I do it because it's so e- easy to cook. Like, I can sit there and cook nice fish. I always get stuff on sale. Fish and vegetables. And the dinner costs like two fifty a serving. You know, it's like you sit there and a half pound of fish and whatever. And people are like, really? And I go, yeah. And you just throw it in the And I got a little toaster oven. I throw two pieces of fish in, season them, two things of, uh, the you know, zucchini or whatever mm-hmm. throw it in there for 20 minutes it's done it's like yeah. by the time you drive and get you're right that crap food and it feels awful we know we're running out of time i want to find out you're, you're going to take off though soon to shoot a movie now yes what, 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 what movie is that and where are you doing it it's called the things we've seen it's going to be shot in crown point indiana uh it's a it's a great little rural story i'm playing a father uh, a fugitive and his son is trying to my son is trying to bring the family back together we're in a corrupt town where the officials have a financial incentive to let the town burn down there's a forest fire potentially coming to the town. Um, and the great thing about it is um, there was a kid that I don't remember meeting when I was working on Public Enemies, and he was from Crown Point. He came in, and he talked to me as an actor, and he said I was nice to him and his sister. Five years later, the kid's done three or four films, remembers me from that, and said, you were the only guy that was nice to me. You know, everyone was trying to kick us out, and uh, and uh, asked me, and he sent me a script, said, would I like to do this film? And uh, yeah, so I'm going to go back to Crown Point. I'm going back this week week they're doing the opening of the john dillinger museum i'm going to be the guest of honor and um uh, we're going to start shooting that in september but we're going for pre-production next week now how long will you be away a week that's it? okay so it's a not... week for the for the pre-production and then but... in september it'll be uh three weeks now what's that like i mean do you i mean you're leaving la you go to the crown and you, you know crown point but it's like and it's not it's not like you were there when you were there before where there's this exorbitant <laughs> budget where everyone yeah. i mean it's a probably a smaller movie i mean it's it's not it's not like you're not going to be getting handed cash every day. Yeah. I mean, so what will you do in Crown Point? Is your wife going to go with you? Yes. One of the things I asked for in my contract is that I have a house instead of a hotel because it's a small town. And I asked that my family be able to come. And also it's, uh, you know, less than an hour from Chicago. So. so you can go there. So now what else is going on with your acting? I mean, I mean, anything else coming up? Are you auditioning a lot? Are you getting, getting what's going on? Yes. I, I shot another film that's coming out. It was, it was in Chicago um, last year. It has, it's not out yet. Um, and, um, my goodness, I don't know why it's slipping my mind. Not welcome. Not welcome. It's I called. Right Sorry. Shot play, that in you, Chicago. You play William. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me. Um, so I have that going on. I, you know, I had a couple auditions that I'm waiting to hear back from and I just keep pursuing the life. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's I, I, I love pursuing. I think it's a, when you pass that threshold or 15 or 20 years, the guys that, and girls that get past that and that want to be actors are to me are the people I admire most in this world. That something about them is just very special. The perseverance and the intelligence to hang in there is uh, inspiring. And now you wrote a short a few years ago called Joy Division. Yeah. Now, do you plan to write anything again, or was that just a little one and that's something you wanted to get off your like, let's say your acting bucket list, or do you plan to write more, or do you enjoy the writing process? 
I love the writing process. I love to write literature more than writing a screenplay, and I'm not really a big fan of actors writing their own things. I, just, I don't find a lot of scripts like that that I really like. You know, the exceptions are Rocky and Sling Blade maybe. But, um, you know, I, I probably will. But at this point, I would love to just be an actor and work with upcoming directors and talent. That That's really my goal. I, you know, I don't want to work with, like, big stars necessarily. My dream is to work with upcoming, passionate young writers and directors. That's really what where I feel like I belong and where I would like to go. Now, how do you balance the time between the acting, being married, and the gardens? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like that's a, that you have that's that's three careers. I mean, marriage is a career, yeah. acting is a career, and what you're doing, the garden, it's it, it's a career. I mean, it's, it's how do you balance it? Well, my idol is a guy named Wendell Pierce, who's an actor and businessman and philanthropist. Uh, you know, I, he he's my favorite. You know, he built supermarkets and food deserts in Los in uh, sorry in New Orleans. You know, to to handle all these things, to be a businessman, an actor, and uh, a philanthropist is my goal. Um, you know, he does it successfully. I am on my way to success, I believe. You know, and um, you know, I'm an actor. I'm I'm a, I'm a husband and father first. I have two daughters. That's first actor, and then with the uh, philanthropy, you know, I have reached a point now where I can delegate, where I can manage and show what I've learned and, and go on and do different things with the American Heart Association, which are my partners now. And uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm at that point where I can branch out. But, but you know, when I get a film, when I have an audition, I have to go, you know. Now, do your kids eat healthy? Are they excited for vegetables or, or do you have to really twist their arms? Or are they just like regular kids? Like, because they sit there, they must feel pressure. Like, well, if I don't, if I don't like vegetables, daddy's going to No, no, they're me. just, I have a, I have a 11 month old and a four year old. So they, yeah, they, my four year old hates vegetables. What can I tell you? That's funny. That's so funny. And, uh, and so now any events coming up for the garden, any new gardens you're working on right now? We build gardens constantly and we're constantly doing fundraisers, you know, to get corporations involved because all the gardens are corporate funded through the American Heart Association. So like Union Bank, CAA, all these organizations, they have this philanthropic money and they just need to know what to do with it. So we offer them the chance um, to build a garden, maybe have their employees come down and, 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 and see what's going on and work with the kids. And uh, so, so we're constantly working on funding, constantly working on ways to branch out. And, you know, my goal would be to have a, a school garden in every school in the country. I think it would be amazing. Now, how can people uh, find out more about uh, Teaching Gardens? And is there a website or what's all the info on that? Yeah, it's called Teaching Gardens. You can go to the American Heart Association website, which is really simple, www.heart.org. Then it's forward slash Teaching Gardens. Or you can just Google Teaching Gardens, and uh, it will give you all the information in there about how to get a teaching garden for your school and also some lesson plans if you'd like to teach your own kids how to do it, and um, some recipes from some really healthy vegetables if you want to make them uh, incorporate them more into your diet. Now, can people volunteer easily for this, or is it a long process, or how does someone volunteer the same the same thing? To be honest with you, more than volunteers, um, you know, we just need people to apply for gardens and create demand. You know, like I said, I have the kids build the boxes. I have the kids uh, design the plan. I have the kids uh, help me with the irrigation to in- install it. We don't really need a lot of hands-on labor. Right. You know, we need to create the supply and demand, and we need people to to, to support the movement more than anything. I want to thank you for coming on. This is, this is great. And now, and I know you tweet. Uh, it's at Randy. What, what's your tweet? Farm, farmer, vet, actor. Okay, you got to start tweeting more. I don't, I don't yeah. think you tweet that much. You're no. tweeting more. You have to get more followers. <laughs> so follow him, people, and Google Randy Ryan. Go to his IMDb. Uh, go see Public Enemies, and you can think about it him getting hands fulls of money and watch Sex in the City because it was the last episode, which is pretty cool. So follow him. Also, follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Follow me there. Um, also, go to my website, www.coopertalk.net. I have over 390 episodes up there. Bunch of old ones, bunch of new ones. They're going to keep going up. I try to do two or th- I try to do three a week, but I usually, if it's two, it's all right. It's still a good week. Uh, you can also uh, go to uh, iTunes or Stitcher, type in one word. That's uh, Cooper Talk. And uh, email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, also, uh, I have a, a Real Brain Media is a new uh, a new affiliate who's going to start playing me soon. Real Brain Media. Follow them on Twitter. And uh, they're from uh, South Jersey. The guy actually who runs it, I turned out, went to my high school. But I think I'm much older than him because I just know I would have known him. I probably know his father or his mom or whatever. And so, uh, yeah, that's it. I don't know what to say. Uh, follow. Go, go check out Teaching Gardens. Google it. Eat healthy, people, because you know me. I went through that heart problem, and you can get my cookbook, StopTheSalt.com. As I say, it's 120 recipes. 
no pictures to intimidate you, no long, long list of ingredients, just good ingredients. You know, the spices you can use. Also, there's like, you know, different no, no salt added spicing. It all stuff all costs cheap. We talked a little bit about how easy it is to eat healthy and cheap. So check it out. Stopthesalt.com. Buy it from me. I'll autograph it and send you a copy. So that's it. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm on this tip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I'll talk to you next week.